Let us try a thought experiment. Suppose we're designing an autonomous vehicle and we need to program the computer to decide whether to swerve to avoid an infant or an elderly person. We would probably opt to save the infant. The older person has had a life. The infant has a longer future to experience. But what would we do if we had to provide instructions between swerving to avoid an infant or an adult in his or her prime? That adult has family responsibilities, has accumulated human capital from training and education. What would you do? Well, you would probably still decide to save the child and reject an economistic argument as callous and immoral. Now, this is not a trivial question. It was posed by the head of the computer lab at Cambridge University, who felt that philosophers and theologians are needed to help computer scientists make these choices. Let's now rephrase this question in two areas, both of which use economic reason to the detriment of the older generation. Both are real rather than hypothetical thought experiments. The first was addressed by the Road Research Laboratory in deciding how to invest funds for road safety measures. What is the value to society of saving a life? This led to the calculation of the value of prevented fatalities. From about 1970, this measure took two things into account. What was the loss of future output of the person who was killed on the road? And what was the future consumption of the individual? This allowed different fatalities to be priced. The elderly or the retired were assumed to have no present output. Their consumption came from savings or from old age pensions, which were a transfer from other people or from their own past, rather than additional consumption. So according to this model, their value was nil. Well, the Road Research Laboratory decided to allow some value for sentimental reasons, so they were allocated a subjective value of £5,000. But the average value of everybody was taking as £17,000. It's then found that more pedestrian deaths came from the elderly walking on the pavement, being mowed down, whereas an individual car passenger, a motorcyclist, was worth three times a retired person. It therefore made more sense to spend money on better motorways to save the people at the prime than on pedestrian safety measures to save people who were older. So this approach explicitly made a calculation about the economic value of an individual to society. The second concept was developed by two Nobel Prize winning economists in the early 1960s. This was the quality adjusted life years, or I would call it qualies. It was used to assess the cost of a medical procedure 
and the benefit to the individual in terms of added life years adjusted for the quality of that added life year. The technique was taken up by the National Health Service and by the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, or NICE, and was applied to areas from the 1960s and 70s, such as whether to allocate resources for renal dialysis. This approach considered the well-being of the individual rather than their value to others. Now, these two measures were used within the government departments, but politicians were rather wary of drawing attention to the criteria used in both measures in allocating resources. They didn't wish to be seen as valuing the life of one human over another. Now, what are these measures to do with COVID-19 and the issues of intergenerational equity, which is the subject of today's lecture and my following two lectures in this series? And the answer is a lot. We know with COVID-19 that the death rate rises rapidly with age <clears throat> and is low for younger people. To protect the elderly, lockdown was, and now is, imposed, which has a disproportionate effect on the young. If we were to adopt the approach I've set out so far, the value of prevented fatalities and qualies, the policy of lockdown would not have been adopted. The harm to the young would on these measures be greater than the gain to the elderly. So value of preventive, preventive fatality measurements and quality measurements suggest we should not adopt the policies protect the elderly at the cost to younger generations. Lockdown policies have been adopted to protect the elderly. Should they have been? Well, not everybody thinks that that policy should have been adopted. In September, Duncan Maskell, currently the Vice-Chancellor of Melbourne University and formerly the head of the School of Biological Sciences in Cambridge at a time when I was the head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences in Cambridge, informed the Sydney Morning Herald that decision-makers must consider adopting qualies. I quote, A life near its end, whether because of disease or advanced age, is empirically different to a healthy life closer to its beginning. And he went on to say that my personal view is there should be some form of sensible public health quality-based analysis done and tough calls made. It boils down to a basic but very hard moral philosophy. What is the value of a 90-year-old's life versus the value of the continuing livelihood and happiness of a 25-year-old? Personally, he said, 
I think it is an absolute tragedy that young people's lives are being disrupted. Well, we can certainly agree with that last statement, but would we accept that very hard moral philosophy that he set out earlier on in that quotation? But it's not only Duncan Maskell who is asking this question. Recently, the Great Barrington Declaration in October argued that the lockdown was mistaken, that it was leading to devastating effects on future excess mortality from medical interventions not being carried out, and above all, it was causing harm to the young. The signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration argued that those at low risk, the young, should lead their lives normally, return to work and education, and build up herd immunity, and that the elderly, in the meantime, should stay at home, not giving lectures like today, and shield. Well, the Great Barrington Declaration is not widely supported by epidemiologists who doubt whether herd immunity is efficacious. They're wary about the health impact of long COVID and they doubt the efficacy of shielding the elderly because if there is a higher infection rate in the general population, it will inevitably lead to infection by the most vulnerable. But the point I wish to make here is not about the epidemiological effectiveness of the proposals of the Great Barrington Declaration. It's a more fundamental one of whether quality measures are a sensible way of proceeding. As we have noted, qualies were used by NICE, but they have been criticised by the philosopher and bioethicist John Harris as actually being nasty. In Harris's view, qualies are fatally flawed, positively dangerous, morally indefensible. Now, why does he make that, that case when we might think that, in fact, it's a good way of deciding how to allocate scarce resources? Let me just outline his argument. So, first of all, he says, I might personally prefer one year of healthy life after a medical intervention to three years of severe discomfort. But I might still prefer a medical invention which gave me an extra three years of life in discomfort than having no intervention, immediate death, even if that led to one year of healthy life for somebody else if that money was spent on them instead. Why should the decision about whether my decision to have three years of unhealthy life or you to have one year of healthy life be made by an algorithm over whose assumptions I have no control? Another example he gives is this. Let's take a group of seven people all of whom have zero life expectancy without 
a medical treatment. With treatment, six of those people would have remission for one year. They would have six qualies in total. But the seventh person would have seven years remission. So that one person has seven qualies. Does that mean denying medical treatment to six people, so they have no treatment at all and they die, so that the seventh can live? Well, to Harris, that approach is ethically reprehensible. He says it is individuals who lose their lives, and the value of life belongs to him or her, not to society as a whole. He goes on to argue that a society that values the lives of its citizens tries to ensure that as few of them die prematurely as possible. But qualies, in the case we've just outlined, sacrifice six lives for one. Suppose that each of those six wants to go on living for as long as possible and values the remission, perhaps to see a, a child married or, or to, to have some other celebration. To choose between them on the basis of qualies, he says, gives no value to the lives of six people. And he argues, the result is to contradict the conception of justice and civil rights <clears throat> by which each person is as morally important as any other. Qualies could allow a few to benefit at the expense of the many to assist those who gain the maximum number of qualies, the young rather than the old. But to Harris, it is people and not units of lifespan that matter. Qualies, he says, are ageist. It is for the individual to decide if a short, painful remission is important. To him, to Harris, the life of each has the same value as the life of any other, and the state must not make choices that abridge civil rights. To quote Harris, a society through its public institutions is not entitled to discriminate between individuals in ways that mean life or death for them on grounds which count the lives or fundamental interests of some, of some as worth less than those of others. Now, you might not personally agree with Harris. You might agree with Duncan Maskell. <clears throat> you might think that the use of the techniques of uh, value of prevented fatalities or qualies are entirely appropriate as a way of deciding between spending money on kidney dialysis or building motorways versus pedestrianisation. You might think that Harris is overly individualistic in setting the needs of every individual against the collective needs of society. You will have your own views on this. I pose it to you. But I intend to proceed by accepting Harris's argument, not so, not so much on the moral or philosophical grounds as practical and pragmatic grounds, 
because we have seen from the recent experience of lockdown that there is very little popular support for adopting an approach to the pandemic that leads to excess deaths amongst the elderly. So let's assume that economic disruption and lockdowns will continue for some time, even with the news of the vaccine that came out yesterday, and that the economic disruption and lockdowns will have detrimental effects on the life chances of younger people in order to save the lives of the elderly. What we need to do is, if we accept that we have lockdowns, is to devise other policies that mitigate the harm of COVID, but more than that, also reverse a longer-term generational divide which started well before the pandemic and which has hit the life chances of those born since the 1980s. This growing generational divide was stressed by David Willits, the former Conservative minister, in his book, The Pinch Generation. His case was that the baby boomers, people like me, have pinched assets, housing, pensions, and it is time to give back. David Willits was involved with establishing the Resolution Foundation, which in October produced an intergenerational audit of COVID-19. And this slide from that um, intergenerational audit shows a graph of generations rising diagonally across the screen, starting at different dates of birth. And we hear, here we have the baby boomers, Generation X, the Millennials, and Generation Z. The baby boomers were born between 1946 and 1965. They came to retirement around the time of the Great Recession after 2008. So their whole working life was before that and before COVID. They, we, were the big gainers. Generation X was born between 1966 and 1980. Largely acquired assets before the recession. Some of the younger members might have been hit, but they again did reasonably well. The millennials were born between 1981 and 2000, and they had a double hit. First of all, from the Great Recession, and now from COVID. And then Generation Z, born after 2000, of course, are being even more badly affected. Let's have a look at some data to indicate some of the different life experiences of those generations shown on the screen. First is housing. The average age of first purchase of a house in 1960 was 23. By 2007, the average age of first purchase of a house 
had risen to 31 and in 2017 to 33. Put it a different way, 64% of those born in the early 1950s owned their own home by the age of 35. This fell to 53% of those born in the early 70s to 46% of those born in the early 1980s. And it is now estimated that a third of millennials will never afford to buy their own home. Let's also take pensions. The Institute for Fiscal Studies found in that in 1979, the median income of a pensioner was two-thirds of the median non-pensioner. In 2009, for the first time, the median pensioner was better off than the median person in work. And the reason for this is the triple lock. That is, the state pension rises by whichever is the fastest of average income, inflation, or 2.5%. And that is much more generous than in-work benefits. So if we look at this chart from the Resolution Foundation, here are people in work and their benefits are falling and the people who are retired, their benefits rising. Very stark uh, differential there. And if we look at the second uh, of the slides relating to this point, we see that the basic state pension, that is the, the red line, is rising and opening a gap with the basic level of unemployment benefit. So the projection is, by uh, the early years of this decade, the um, unemployment benefit will be half that of the state pension. To fund these pensions, the working age population has a fall in its income to pay for both state and private pensions, but they will not themselves, when they come to retire, have such gener generous pensions from their employer because of a shift from defined benefit pensions based upon final salary to career averaging, as in universities, or de from defined benefits to defined contributions. So yet again, the baby boomers have gained and have passed the costs onto the younger generations. What about education? <clears throat> For the baby boomers generation, tertiary education was considered to be a public good so that small number, minority, who went to university graduated with no or little debt. Now, university education, tertiary education, is defined as a personal benefit to the individual rather than to society, which leaves the individual with a large debt. Now, 
Of course, only a minority went to university or indeed to grammar school back in the baby boom generation, but even those who did not nevertheless had a reasonably high level of social mobility at a time of full employment and, as I'll be going on to argue in a moment, a particular structure of the labour market. My next point about the baby boomers stealing the goods comes from this uh, infamous book, Thomas Picketing. Infamous because people buy it and it's so big they don't read it. The argument of Thomas Piketty is that the rate of return on assets is larger than the growth rate of the economy. So that anybody with assets, the baby boomers, gains, wealth inequalities widen, and they might leave their assets to their children and grandchildren so that then inequality cascades down the generations. Distribution of wealth becomes more unequal and inheritance has an intergenerational impact. So the 1981 to 85 cohort had 25% less wealth in real terms at the age of 34 than the 1971 to 75 cohort at the same age. So there's a differential uh, sorting out here. A few people have a lot more, but most people have less in real terms. Let's take that a stage further to look at consumption and savings. Now, the Great Recession after 2008 led to quantitative easing. That was needed to prevent the collapse of the financial system. But quantitative easing led to higher asset prices. Low interest rates meant people bought shares and equities. That benefited the richest 10%. Their wealth and income rose, and the result of that was a savings glut of the rich. A large increase of consumption by the elderly, who had the assets, whereas those people who were at work did not have much of any increase in the average income for a decade, and they kept up their consumption by dissaving, by building up debt. And they were also hit by austerity and a shift in the labour market to greater precarity. So the lowest 90% of the income distribution turned to debt to maintain their consumption. Those people with debt, dissaving, had a problem of coping both with current economic uncertainty, but because they were dissaving, they couldn't save for the future perils of old age and sickness. And this graph shows this in a striking way where the younger age groups are dissaving, whereas the older ones are saving and consuming. And my next and final point here about the difference between generations is shifts in the labour market. 
the baby boom generation had full employment. But it wasn't only that. It was a labour market after the Second World War through to the 1960s and even 70s, in which those individuals without formal qualifications, without credentials, could secure steady work in manufacturing jobs, working in the Ford Motor Company or shipyard or in coal mining or whatever it might be. These are skilled jobs, but they don't require formal qualifications. They're steady, they're decent work. Deindustrialization removed those jobs. And much of the growth in employment in the later years of the 20th century were in what some economists have called lousy jobs, precarious jobs. Those people with high levels of formal qualifications, on the other hand, had what are called lovely jobs. They have flexibility. They have ability to benefit from globalisation. This shift in the labour market is also a shift in the nature of capitalism. The first type of job I was outlining is related to tangible fixed capital in factories. That has economies of scale. You could only build a car factory to be such a size before it starts having a declining economic efficiency. But the new capital is what is called intangible capital. We've all encountered that during lockdown as we engage in Zoom calls or bought things from Amazon. There is no economy of scale involved in those, no diseconomies of scale involved in those forms of capital. The few people who have those assets gain hugely but they also create precarious jobs for the people who work in the Amazon warehouses and so on. So what we find here then is an opening gap growing up between, between generations, between people with different levels of, of skill. Now, these trends were all present before 2020. What the pandemic has done is intensified them. Pensioners continue to have their automatic rises. Those on furlough are only receiving part of their income. The young, precarious jobs are being hit very badly, whereas pensioners get their automatic rise. Asset prices, despite the impact of COVID, have continued to rise above pre-COVID levels, and recent figures have shown that the major beneficiaries have been billionaires. There's been continued growth in precarious jobs in delivery, supermarkets. And of course, there's a rise in the national debt, which is often said will be a charge upon the future, upon the young, who are going to be paying for the costs of support for generation to come. Now, what these trends before COVID and during COVID suggest, it is time, as David Willits said, for the pinch generation to give back. 
the pinch generation is now being protected by lockdowns and they should contribute to society and to the next generations. But how? What ways are there to help the younger generations as we protect the older generations? Various ideas have been addressed and discussed uh, before COVID to address these intergenerational issues, which now seem even more relevant. Whether they can be implemented depends upon political mobilisation. The question is whether the young can mobilise and express their grievances. In the past, pensioners have had political voice. They're more likely to vote, hence the triple lock. But might this change? Well, recent data from uh, Deutsche Bank suggests that it might. This is data for G7 economies, which shows that by the early 1930s, Generation Z, Millennials and future generations will dominate the electorate. And therefore, they might start to demand action on these issues. Well, it might be that we should start thinking ahead before that anyway, in terms of equity. Various ideas were being discussed even before COVID and are being discussed even more now. You might feel that these ideas are utopian, but as, an, as a historian, I would point out that things have changed in the past in terms of taxation and funding of social welfare in ways that were considered at the time to be undesirable or not feasible. So th perhaps things might change again. Let me now run through some of these ideas that are being discussed. I'm not necessarily advocating them. I'm just pointing out that these are ideas which are very much um, being talked about. The first is taxation of inheritance or taxations of wealth. Now, it's often thought that taxing of inheritances is a bad thing. There's been calls in the states to abolish um, taxation of inheritance. But this had some support from 19th century liberals, John Stuart Mill, William Gladstone. Both said that this is a desirable form of taxation. And in the Conservative Party, in opposition between 1964 and 1970, there was similar discussion over the use of higher levels of wealth tax in order to create a dynamic society by destroying what was called a gerontocracy, that wealth being held by the elderly and passed to the next generation who might not be up to the task of looking after that money in a way which would be economically efficient. So it's people like Keith Joseph who are arguing that. This policy then was not just some sort of wild socialism. It is supported, indeed, by Bill Gates Sr. and Warren Buffett, who said that inheritance is like, and I quote, 
choosing the 2020 Olympic team by picking the eldest sons of gold medal winners in the 2000 Olympics. In other words, wealth is not necessarily going to the people who can run fastest or be most efficient. Rather than assets going only to direct heirs and creating growing inequality, could they be used by society as a whole to create a more dynamic economy? The second argument would be to restore progressive taxation. The top marginal retention rate, that is, how much of an extra one pound of income was retained, was about 98% in 2013. At the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, it was 35%. By 1950, at the end of the Attlee government, only 5% of that extra one pound of income was retained. At the moment, it is 60%. Now, one can argue about where on that spectrum it should be, but it could be argued, it is argued by some, that at 60% is too high a retention rate at the top because it is leading to a growing sense of inequality. The share of income held by the top 0.1% was 11% in 1913, 1.5% 1 in 1979, and has now increased to 5 to 6%. But there's no evidence that the gains by that very small top 0.1% leads to more rapid growth or incentives. So the case here would be that it would be possible to increase the top marginal rates and widen the tax base, as well as taxing wealth transfers through a lifetime capital receipts tax or a property tax based on up-to-date assessments. These sort of arguments you find in Piketty's book on capital. But if you don't buy those arguments, then there's another way of increasing the taxation level, and that is through the OECD tackling harmful international tax practices by dealing with tax havens, with the treatment of multinational corporations, and its recent proposals to tackle what is called base erosion and profit shifting. That is eroding the tax base by shifting uh, profits to other jurisdictions. Now, those measures, and there are doubtless others, could produce more revenue. They could also reduce intergenerational inequality. But if you have more tax revenue, what do you then use it for? And what we want to do, of course, if my argument is right, is use it to assist the younger generations, the millennials and Generation Z. And a number of leading economists have made some suggestions of how this might be done. And the, they include the late uh, Sir Tony Atkinson and Paul Collier uh, of Oxford University in his book, the future of capitalism. Uh, 
and they've made a number of suggestions. Again, you might feel that they are utopian, but let's think what they might be. The first would be more generous child benefit. In the United Kingdom, about 26% of children are in poverty. The figure in the United States is 29%. By contrast, Norway has 11%. So the argument here would be to give more generous child benefit to all children as taxed income. So those who don't uh, need it so much, they would pay taxation on it. The second view, which is being much talked about now, is the payment of basic income to everyone who participates, important to stress, participates in the economy. This has been considered, for example, in Switzerland, which in June 2016 had a referendum on paying a basic income of 30,000 Swiss francs per head to everyone. And that secured support in the referendum of 23% of the population. It's been debated or even adopted on an experimental basis in Brazil, Canada, Finland, the Netherlands and India. It could possibly be linked to a negative income tax, so it would be taxed away and withdrawn as wages rise above a threshold. A third possibility is a minimum inheritance paid on reaching adulthood attached to the number of years of receipt of childhood benefit. In other words, you'd be pro rata to need as defined by receipt of childhood benefit. Julian Legrand of the London School of Economics proposed that the funding should come from increased inheritance tax. Tony Atkinson suggested it should come from a lifetime capital receipts tax and that the money received, the inheritance received, should then be restricted to spending upon education, apprenticeship, starting a small business, down payment on housing. My next and... No, it's not my penultimate. My next uh, proposal that's been talked about is reform of social care. And this almost did happen. The proposal of Andrew Dillnott in his report of 2011, Fairer Care Funding. And this is clearly a major issue in the pandemic. There's in inequity or lottery in the end of life care for people who say suffer from cancer, who are paid by the NHS for their, their care, end of life care, but not for dementia. If somebody was in long-term care for dementia, it could take all of their assets. Dillnot's proposal was that everybody above a higher means-tested threshold should contribute to social care up to a cap of £35,000. So they were protected from the extreme cost of that dementia care. The state would then take over. This would be a system of risk pooling of collective social responsibility which is better than trying to save individually to cover the full cost, which you might well not be able to do. 
If you have a fixed cap, then most people would be able to insure or save to meet that cap. Now, that proposal almost passed in 2015, but it didn't. And then, in the general election, Theresa May raised the cap to £100,000. That led to criticism of the dementia tax. So it might well be that the Dilnot proposal will now come back. But how to pay for it? It needs more funding of local authorities to pay for that uh, social care, which would have to come from central government. And Dilnot saw three ways in which that money could come from central government. One would be more revenue from general taxation, which I was outlining. Another one, of course, would be to shift from other forms of public spending, so less money upon high-speed tools, whatever it might be. And it could also be an additional tax on those benefiting from the reforms. The elderly, the baby boomers, perhaps they could pay more. Now, he didn't elaborate how that could be done, but one can think of a number of ways in which it could be done by taxing the baby boomers, the pinch generation. Why should the people above a particular age stop paying national insurance contributions? Perhaps they should continue to pay. Could there be a tax on inheritance or wealth? If we did that, everybody would pay something rather than some paying a lot and others a little, depending upon a lottery about what form of end of life they had. Such an approach would be more equitable between the elderly and across the generations. It would be paying money into a general pot rather than to heirs, which leads to growing inequality. Now, I have two other uh, ideas which have been talked about. The next one is a sovereign wealth fund. This was created in Norway from its oil revenues. It was considered in Britain in the 1970s, but rejected. It was adopted in France in 2008 in their structural investment fund. Now, again, this is not a socialist measure. Singapore has it, for example. Tony Atkinson argues that such a fund, sovereign wealth fund, in the United Kingdom could build up the net worth of the state. And I quote, the net worth of the state is a measure of what we pass on to future generations. And the establishment of sovereign wealth fund is a vehicle for achieving intergenerational equity. The IMF has made the same point. And some people see the current crisis as an opportunity to secure a sovereign wealth fund on the cheap by the state taking assets in uh, currently stressed companies. Now, my final set of considerations is this fundamental issue of the level of the national debt. It's often said that building up the national debt for war or for dealing with the uh, pandemic is putting a burden upon future generations. As is said very often, 
that we must not pass on to our children the results of our profligate public spending. We must adopt austerity. Now, the argument against that is that sometimes public spending and debt creates assets which are handed on to the next generation. And it's certainly the case that in the mid-1970s, the value of state assets was well above the national debt by about 75% of GDP. From 1979 onwards, the value of state assets has fallen so that debt is now higher than assets by about 20%. Now, some people argue, like Tony Atkinson and the IMF, that we shouldn't think just about the debt-to-GDP ratio, as in this graph, we should think about the amount of assets which the state owns. Now, going beyond that, the national debt is clearly a major concern with the pandemic. In this case, spending does not produce an asset. And some argue that spending on support for the economy will be yet another burden on our grandchildren who are suffering now. What should be done about it? Well, it could be argued that the level of debt now is much lower than it was in the First World, First World War, Second World War, and Napoleonic Wars, when it was over 200%. It's now about 100% with the cost of, of COVID. What should we do about this level of, of debt which is now being, being built up? This goes back to my starting point about whether or not the lockdown is economically sustainable. And I would like to finish by just assessing some arguments about this, looking at the long-term history. If we look at the longer-term history of how debt levels were reduced in those three periods then it was done by a mixture of different variables, three variables. The first is interest rates, the cost of servicing the debt. After the First World War, interest rates remained high. So that didn't explain the drop. At the end of the Second World War, it did. And now we do have low interest rates. So probably by locking in low interest rates, by extending the duration of government bonds, we can try and reduce the cost of servicing the debt. The second variable was inflation. Inflation did not explain this massive drop of debt over the 19th century because prices in 1815 were about the same as prices in 1914. After the Second World War, inflation did reduce the debt. Now, obviously, we don't want to have hyperinflation, but perhaps a modest level of inflation would help. The Bank of England undershot its inflation target uh, in the recent past and could possibly be allowed to make up for lost ground, as some have advocated. Inflation would probably then help to reduce the, the debt provided it is not allowed to get out of control. But the third variable, and the one I would like to stress here, is growth. The major reason for this massive drop in the 
a level of debt as a percentage of GDP in this period is the increase in GDP because of the level of economic growth. And the same applies to, to perhaps a lesser extent in the period since the Second World War. So what we need to do is work on the side of growth of GDP rather than just being obsessed by the level of debt. And the policies that would help growth could also be used to help the young and the precarious by changing the nature of the economy as it grows. Of course, one way of doing that is by having a green growth, which does not harm future generations by creating climate change, which will hit them and later generations. Now, when I proposed these three lectures back in the autumn of 2019, COVID-19 was not known. COVID-19 has brought the question of what generations owe to each other to the fore in a way which might have the potential for a major change in policy. It might be a shock to the system to make a change. I've been sketching some of the ways this has been talked about. My main point is a simple one. If we are to protect the lives of the elderly rather than to adopt the calculus, the economistic calculus of qualies, then we need a set of policies that can help the young and create a new social contract across generations. Looking after grandparents means positive action for grandchildren. In my next lecture on the 16th of February, I will be looking at how such contracts across the generations have evolved over time and varied between different societies. They've changed in the past, they've taken different forms, they might change again. I will look at how assets are handed on from one generation to another, within families and within communities. There's nothing fixed about it, and looking at the past might provide us with some sense of perspective on our current dilemmas. In the third lecture, on the 13th of April, I will turn to an area where the young have been active, where they have shown political voice, climate change, and Extinction Rebellion. The question here is, what duty do we owe to future generations who are not even yet born, who might indeed not be born if we destroy the planet and its natural environment? So those are the next two lectures. Unfortunately, because of the circumstances of the lockdown today, where I'm in the hall by myself with one technician in, in a room here, it is not possible to have live questions tonight. But you can put any questions or comments in the Ask the Question box, and I will then try to get back to you with any reflections on your questions. Thank you. <laughs>